I don't know if you've heard the story about the lady who uh, was married to a, a Marine colonel, and she had nine kids. He was stationed in Germany, and so she left with the nine kids to go see her husband stationed in Germany. He was on a short-term duty, so they decided not to move the family. So she gets to the airport. She's got nine kids, all her luggage. And so she goes to the customs agent, and the customs agent looks at her. She's frazzled. Her hair is everywhere. She's, she's dragging these nine kids. Get in line, stay here, and everything else. And the customs agent looks at her and says, Ma'am, are all these children yours? And she said, Yes. And he says, Ma'am, do you have any weapons or drugs or contraband in your possession? And she leaned over the counter. She said, if I did, don't you think I would have used it by now? (laughs) What is the attitude that overcomes? There's an overcoming attitude. By the way, there are two ways to travel. First class and with children. How many of you can identify with that? First class in which, oh yeah, I'll tell you, I've been there. Paul says we are to rejoice in the Lord when we feel like it. Oh, it says always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And because he's talking to Baptists, he said, and again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit Be known to all men, the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, now underline peace of God because you're going to see a different phrase in just a few moments. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now look at what he says. He says, when we're rejoicing, when we're not anxious, when we're focused on the right things, when we're living the life that God intended for us, we have two things. We have, in verse 7, the peace of God. But in verse 9, we have the God of peace. And you want both. You see, I don't want the peace of God without the God of peace. That would be like the nation of Israel when they sinned against God and God said, I'll send an angel, but I'm not going with you. And Moses said, what good is it if you send an angel and get us to the promised land and you're not there with us? I don't just want the peace of God. I want the presence and the awareness of the God of peace in my life. And so Paul is writing and talking about the attitudes that we are to have and the mindset that we are to have and the kind of attitude that overcomes. And and quite honestly, these are things we have to work on, don't we? They don't come automatically. Our, Our first choice is not to say, I've got the peace of God. We have to choose to say, I'm going to pursue this kind of thinking 
It's not a class you take. It's not a seminar you go to. It is by daily diligence with God. Now, there are all kind of attitudes that the Bible talks about. One of those is patience. Have you ever said, I, I, I just wish I had more patience? You, you shouldn't say that because James says trials produce patience. I'd rather be impatient than go through trials. I've just got to be honest with you. But you see, when you pray about attitudes, God begins to do the things in your life that makes you develop those attitudes. He begins to shape you and to form you. And those trials and those setbacks and those times when your faith is stretched bring you to a point where you learn patience and to think about whatever's true and noble and of good repute. I read a story this week about a, a young man whose wife was having a baby. And, you know, look, if there's one thing this church has, it has a lot of babies. And, you know, uh, this church takes literally be fruitful and multiply. And so uh, we, we got a lot of babies around here. But this guy was having a baby, and his wife had been in labor for 18 hours. And she was just screaming. She was in so much pain because she wanted to do natural you know, I say, hey, if there's a drug that'll keep it from hurting, give it to me. You know, Ron Dunn used to say that America would be a better place if everybody had to go to the hospital and be on Demerol for 24 hours once a month. Hey, how are you? So this guy's wife is screaming, and she goes in there. She says, you don't understand. This hurts. And he says, you think you're in pain? I've been out there with your parents for 18 hours, and they don't give me an epidural. <laughs> So let's talk about attitude as a choice. Now, th this was an interesting statistic that I found. 81% of people in one survey said they do not come to church and they're not interested in church because people in churches have bad attitudes. 81%. That's their perception. And perception is reality. So the perception of many people in the lost world is that Christians don't have any better attitude than they do. And when we talk about attitude, it's a choice that we make, which affects our countenance, which affects our perspective, and also affects the kind of friends we have. Because our attitude determines the kind of people we're attracted to and the kind of people that are attracted to us. Jesus spent a lot of time talking to the Pharisees about their attitudes about people. You probably heard somebody say, you know, my kids drive me crazy. Your kids don't drive you crazy. You're, you're, you're making the choice to go crazy. You know, they made me mad. No, they, nobody can make you mad. You choose to get mad. You see, attitude is a choice. And the first choice we make is we make the choice to rejoice. The choice to rejoice. We choose to rejoice, not in circumstances, because they change. Not in people, because they will let us down. Not in family, because they will disappoint us. Not even in the church, because the church may do something you don't like. But our rejoicing is in the Lord. Now, this is the way some people want to read verse 6. Let your request be made known to God so he will solve all your problems and give you everything you want and you can live happily ever after. That's not what God says. 
God did not save us from life. God saved us so that we could get through this life with the right mindset and the right attitude. God does not save us from problems. Problems are going to be here. God saves us so that we are equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live life abundantly regardless of what our circumstances might be. And so your attitude is either your best friend or your worst enemy. Back, back in the days of the Jesus movement when I was young, you know, I used to be a young preacher here. We called a young pastor. Now our pastor has white hair. He's old. Uh, but they did it to me. I didn't have anything to do with it. Just joking. Don't anybody don't get in an uproar. It's okay. Your attitude is either your best friend or your worst enemy. What you choose to do about your attitude. And the, the heart of this passage is how to have an attitude of tranquility and peace in the midst of turmoil. And there are two things that he says that produces peace. Verses 4 and 6, praise. Praising God produces this peace. And verse 6, prayer. Back when I was young, we used to do this thing called attitude check, and everybody would say, praise the Lord. Any, any of you ever remember doing that? Or am I the only one here that remembers? You know, you just, the, the preacher stand up, youth minister stand up, say, attitude check. And everybody go, praise the Lord. Let's try that. Attitude check. Okay, you got it. Good. We can go on. I don't have to chase any rabbits tonight, so that's good. Now, remember, the key word in Philippians is rejoice. We are to be joyful, and we are commanded to rejoice. If we live by our emotions, if we live according to our circumstances, we will not always be a rejoicing people. But if we live with our eyes on the Lord, we can rejoice even when our emotions don't want to do that and when our circumstances seem like it makes it impossible for us to do that. And, and how often are we to rejoice? Always. Not when I feel like it. Not just when I want to. Not most of the time. All the time. Now, i, I got to be honest with you. It is hard for me to rejoice in traffic. I know I'm the only one here. But, you know, there, there are more people behind the wheels of cars today that have no business. They don't even need a tricycle. They don't know how to drive. They don't know how to use a turn signal. And I tell you, I can be going down the road and I can be really in a good mood and then somebody just does something. And at that point, I have a choice to get upset about it or a choice to say, well, Lord, maybe you're letting that guy live. He's just a dumb driver. Maybe you're letting him live because somebody's going to win him to Jesus when he has a flat tire somewhere. I don't know. I, I got to tell you, funny. I, I, I laughed. I rejoiced about this. I was down helping uh, Aaron find an apartment in Orlando. And so I, I went to, you know, you know, you can find those apartment finder books and home books anywhere except when you need one. I drove back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, went to seven places looking for an apartment finder book. My third place I stopped was a 7-Eleven. Everybody know what a 7-Eleven? I stopped at a 7-Eleven. Sitco Gas, 7-Eleven, okay? 
I walk in. I'm on the phone with Tim Gagline called me from the White House. I'm talking to a guy in the White House in a 7-Eleven. That is a surreal experience. I just want... Talking to somebody in the White House in a 7-Eleven is a weird, weird feeling. So I'm talking to him. I get off the phone. I walk up. This lady has a badge on. It says manager. She'll know. I've looked over all the bookshelves. I've looked out front. I walk up to her, and I said, ma'am, do you have an apartment finder book? And she said, no, we don't have those. You'll have to go next door to the 7-Eleven. And I looked out, and I said, ma'am, that's a shell station. There's no 7-Eleven. You know, and I called Terry, and I said, you, you just can't believe it. I just had to go out in the car and laugh. I just had to laugh. These people are handling somebody's money. They don't even know where they're working. That's funny. No wonder we won the war in five days. This kind of rejoicing is not the power of positive thinking because you can meet lost people who are positive because some people by nature are just more positive than others. Some people by nature are more negative than others. This is a choice that we make before God. And, and, and I tell you, I've met some very positive lost people. This is not about thinking your way to success. This is not about positive thinking. This is about a choice to have a biblical mindset. I love what Manly Beasley said. Manly Beasley said, some people are better by nature than most of us are by grace. <laughs> you know, have you ever met some lost people that you thought, they're nicer than some Christians I've met? But you see, this attitude of rejoicing is a choice, and it is the highest form of praise. What did Paul do when he had the thorn in the flesh? He rejoiced, not in the thorn, but that in God's strength was made perfect in his weakness. What did Paul do when he was in prison? Acts chapter 16, he sang praises to God. What did Peter do when he was in prison? He prayed to God. The church was praying. Uh, Robert Smith says Peter had an easier time getting out of prison than he had getting into the prayer meeting where they were praying for him to get out of prison. Look, it's Simon Peter. It can't be. We've asked God to get him out of prison. It couldn't be Simon Peter because we're praying for him. He's in prison. There's a choice that we make. We make the choice to rejoice. Secondly, we make the choice to rest in the Lord. Verse 5. Let your gentle spirit, not panic, be known to all men. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing. How we react under pressure. Gracious, gentle, kindness. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do with us and in us. Uh, I've done more personality profiles than, than I can care to take. On my biblical personality profile, I'm a Joshua. On my regular personality profile, I'm a high D, high I. Uh, I'm a high D, Aaron's a high I, uh, Terry's a high S, and Haley's a high C. And the guy who gave us that test said, I bet your vacation is just a blast. (laughs) Because I'm in control. Aaron's trying to influence the car. Terry's trying to make everybody can't. We just get along. And Haley's sitting there saying, if you'd listen to me, we'd have done it right the first time. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, we got all kind of personalities. But here's the thing you learn about a personality profile. There's who you think you are, and then there's who you are under pressure. And who you are under pressure, that's what comes out of you. That's who you really are. 
And, and Paul says we're to be anxious for nothing. And what comes out of most of us when we're under pressure is panic, anxiety, stress. Rather than taking a deep breath and saying, Lord, you knew this was going to happen. You know that I'm in this situation. You're, you're a sovereign God. You've allowed this. I, I'm going to choose to trust you in this moment. That's a hard thing to do. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's an attitude we have to work on. God's peace is produced in us, and then we have to nurture that peace in our lives. And so look at what he says. In verse 8, he tells us what we're to dwell on. These are the things we're to dwell on, to meditate on, to chew on, to think about. In verse 9, he tells us what we're to do. We don't just dwell on it. Lord, I'm just going to think about that for a while. He says, practice these things. Why? Because the Lord is near. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is about to come in the second coming. What it means is that the presence of God is near to you. And you need to practice these things, and you need to dwell on these things, because as you dwell on them and as you practice them, you'll sense the nearness of the presence of God. Ha have you realized that there are times in your life when God is near to you when you didn't know he was near to you? Have you experienced those moments when you, you, you didn't know that God was there, but God was there? And only in hindsight, looking back, did you realize... I can see how God was in that situation. I can see that God gave me a peace in that moment. The scripture says he will never, and the Greek would say, never, no, never, no, never, ever forsake you. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, just remember our attitude to rejoice is a choice that we make because we rest in the Lord and we dwell on the things that he wants us to dwell on. Secondly, prayer is not optional. The phrase, in everything. We are not to worry about anything. We're to pray about everything. Now, here's how a lot of us do our praying. Lord, I'm just going to give this situation to you. I'm going to trust you with this situation. I know that you're a sovereign God. I know that you can do all things. I know that you can meet all my needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus. I know that you're all sufficient, that you're all wise, that you're all knowing, that you're a loving Heavenly Father. And if, if we being evil would give good gifts to our kids, you know, how would you give, give bad things to us? And I know that you're a good God. And Lord, I'm just going to turn this over to you. And we get up, pick up the phone and say, you got to pray for me. I'm in trouble. I just don't know what to do. I don't know. what. See, we worry on our knees. When you pray about everything, you take it to God and you leave it there. Now, let me ask you a question. You know the answer, but do we practice it? When you take something to God, do you try to take it back from Him? Lord, I'm giving this situation to you. I don't know what to do anymore. Now, Lord, I'm just going to take this back a minute because I need to worry about it for about five more minutes because I'll feel better about myself if I worry about this for about five or ten more minutes. And if I can talk to three or four more people, but folks, when you've talked to God about it, you've gone to the top. You're not going to get any higher than that. Nobody's got more power than he has. Nobody's got more ability to orchestrate and move in your situation than he does. And so we are to pray about everything. He didn't say give thanks for everything, but he said in everything. I'm not going to give thanks if I get a bad medical report. For the bad medical report, I'm going to give thanks that God's with me in that situation. And so that's what Paul's trying to say. Because remember, we don't live by explanations. We live by promises. 
God's promises are what we live by. Because quite honestly, if God explained some things to it, we still wouldn't understand it. And so prayer is not optional. And when I worry and when I'm anxious, what I'm saying is, God, I can't trust you with this. And so I'm going to have to be in control of this situation because I don't know if you will do what is best for me in this situation. And so I can't trust you, so I'm going to take it back. You hear people say, you know, I'm worried sick. And by the way, we have doctors in our church, and they tell you that anxiety and worry and the stress that that does to you will make you sick. It affects you physically. I'm just worried to death. And worrying will do things to your body on the inside that you can't see on the outside. It adds a stress to your life that you don't need to be adding to your life. There needs to be a calm assurance of giving thanks. Because if we don't give thanks, we're not doing what God's told us to do. Let's look at the attitude of prayer. And that is rejoicing. The attitude of prayer is rejoicing. Okay? The latitude of prayer is in everything. The latitude of prayer is in everything. My attitude is to rejoice. The latitude that it covers is in everything. He says, be anxious for nothing. Now, Let's just make this a little mathematical thing. And, and both of my girls are through with math. One of them's graduated. One of them's got two more years. And she said, I have to take no more math. Praise God. I mean, it's like, it's like revival. Let me just give you a little mathematical equation here. Be anxious for nothing plus praying about everything equals the peace of God. Being anxious for nothing plus praying about everything, including those things that you're anxious about, equals the peace of God that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That that means that God builds a garrison, God builds a fortress, a wall around your heart, and, and it gives you ground to stand on. Let me ask you just to turn for a second to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And while you're turning there, I would say to you, if you've never done an intensive study of Psalm 37, I would recommend that you get from the source or from www.rondunn.com. You can get it from either one, from us or from Ron Dunn's ministry. Ron's three-tape series, When the Upright Get Up Tight. It is the best series that I know of anywhere, the best material I know of anywhere about how to deal with anxiety and how to deal with worry and with fretting about things. The psalmist says in Psalm 37 verse 1, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord 
and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. Again, the title of the series is When the Upright Get Uptight. It's on Psalm 37. It's three messages that Ron did here in 1990 in Noonday Bible Studies. And if you have any inclination that you worry and you get anxious and you get troubled about things and you just don't seem to be able to overcome that, I would get that series and I would listen to it over and over until you can begin to apply the truths that are there. Finally, the intended focus of our mind in prayer is clear. Now, actually, this list of words that Paul gives us are also similar lists are found in Greek philosophy. But Paul takes these words and he baptizes them and gives them Christian meanings. And so he just, let's just go down the list. He says, we are to think about whatever is true as opposed to what's false. Also, that means what's valid or what's proven or what's tested. We are to think about the things that have stood the test of time. We are to think about the things that have been proven over time. Not some whim of the moment idea that we come up with, but what's true. And and too many times we focus on our doubts and on our speculations rather than on what's true. I want you to write down this statement because I think it's a very important statement. Because when you get in situations where you're anxious, where you're uptight, you need to remember this statement. The things I do know about God... The things I do know about God enable me to trust Him in areas where I'm struggling. The things that I do know about God, the things I know right now about God, enable me to trust Him in the areas where I'm struggling. And so I may not know what God's doing in this situation, but I can look back and say, you know, I know God did something there, and I know God did something there, and I know God ministered there, and I go God intervened there, and I go know God provided there. So since I do know that about God, that's going to enable me to stand on that and trust God in an area where I'm struggling. So whatever is true, whatever is honorable or worthy of respect or dignified, serious or reverent, We do have a tendency in our culture to be very flippant about the things of God, and nothing seems to be sacred. But I think what Paul is saying here is we need to show respect for the things that deserve respect, and we need to show honor for the things that deserve honor and to be revered. Whatever is right or just or in right standing with God. You you, you don't need to take time to turn here, but Mark chapter 5 and verse 15 you remember the demon-possessed man who was uh, torn all his clothes off and, and he was wild and the people didn't know what to do with him and they were scared of him. Mark five fifteen says, They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. And the man had been called Legion. You see, when this man came to Christ, he was in right standing with God, and being in right standing with God and being delivered from these demons 
put him in a right mind. He was clothed and in his right mind. Now, all of us here tonight are clothed, and thank God we are. But we may not be in our right mind tonight because we may have chosen to believe some lies that the devil has told us or somebody in our life has told us, and we've bought into some thinking that is not right for the believer to have. So it's not just enough to be clothed. We need to be in our right mind, and we need to think about whatever is right, whatever is pure, unmixed, unadulterated, whatever is holy and clean and not dirty, not watered down. We're to pray about, to think about having a pure mind and a pure heart and a pure character. What Paul is saying here is, is we need to have integrity and character, and there, don't, there doesn't need to be any mixed motives in the way that we live our lives. No hidden agendas. Everything is honorable and right and pure. Whatever is lovely or acceptable or gracious or pleasing. You could also say whatever promotes harmony. We're to think about things that promote harmony and not discord. You see, if I have somebody that I have difficulty getting along with, the one thing I know I need to do is pray for them because God give, will give me a love for them that he has. Because I can't talk to God about something without God talking to me about something. It kind of is a two-way conversation there. So I'm to think about whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. Now, this can have two meanings. The first meaning of this can be to think on things well spoken of. The second is to think on things we can speak well of. To think on things well spoken of and to think on things we can speak well of. And when I think about this, I think about the, the spies going into the land of Canaan to spy out the land. By the way, it's the only time God ever allowed a church to have a committee. They came back with the wrong decision. And don't get upset if you like committees. You'll get over it when you get to heaven and find out there's not one. But they sent a committee in. Ten came back and said, oh, giants, big giants. Big giants. And here's Joshua and Caleb over there, just two guys. There's a land flowing with milk and honey, and those giants are nothing compared to what our God can do. Now, some people think about things that are of good repute and say, you know what, I know they're giants, but I've got a God that's bigger than those giants. And some people, all they see is the giants and the problems and the obstacles. Guess what? Everybody that believed the majority report died in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb got to go across because they saw a land flowing with milk and honey and the giants were a secondary issue. You see, you either get distracted by the things that Satan tries to throw at you and the world tries to throw at you or you stay focused on the fact that if God's leading you that he's never going to lead you somewhere for you to fail in your Christian life. He's going to lead you so that you can be what he's called you to be. So whatever's of good repute. Now, there's another thought here that I just want to throw out. If I dwell on a bad report about somebody, somebody gives me a bad report on somebody, if I dwell on that and think about that, it can color the way that I act and react toward that person. Now, the next time you and I think about giving a bad report, let's just remember a little principle here. You can be silent 
in over 150 languages. Just add English to the equation. You know, just because something's true about somebody doesn't mean we need to share it. Because always we will expand it further than it needs to go. So he says we're to think about whatever's of good repute. That we're, if there is anything, by the way, that word is the opposite of blasphemy. And it means to sound off about the good. I remember Layman Strauss talking about being in a meeting with Billy Graham and, and a, a minister had just fallen and, and uh, fallen into immorality and, and uh, Layman said they were sitting at a table and come in, somebody came in almost gloating that this person had fallen and, and said the room was kind of quiet and everybody turned to Billy Graham and looked and Billy Graham said, you know, the greatest sermon I ever heard on the second coming, that man preached. And somebody turned to him and said, well, Mr. Graham and said, this man's just fallen into sin. I mean, how can you? He said, all I'm here to say is the greatest sermon I ever heard that man preach was a sermon on second coming. It ministered to me. It did something for me. We are sometimes quick. I am as guilty as anybody to pick up the bad report and not to try to still see the good and the salvageable out of somebody's life. And so he says, we're to think about that which is good. If there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise. This is kind of a catch-all phrase. Paul says, now if I've left anything out, if I've forgotten anything, uh, if anything of excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Why? Because if you don't think about them, you won't do them. Think about these things that are excellent. I do it consistently until it becomes second nature. Everything begins, folks, with a thought. Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so is he. I'm surprised when I was in the eighth grade, I didn't turn into a girl. That's all I thought about in the eighth grade was girls. As a man thinks, so is he. <laughs> There's a t-shirt out now. And it's big letters on the front. Jesus is coming. Hide the porn. <laughs> You know, a lot of the church is eaten up with pornography on the internet and in other ways. And Jesus is near, Paul says. He's present. So let's make sure we're thinking and watching and reading and embracing the right things into our minds. Because how we think, we are. You see, every murder starts with a thought. Every crime begins with a thought. Every good deed begins with a thought. So he says, if there's anything excellent and anything worthy of praise, think on these things. If I want to change my behavior, I change the way I think. And here's the key to it. We, we do it and we discipline ourselves until it becomes second nature for us. It just, it's almost unconscious. It just happens. We, we've dwelt on things so much, we've done it so much, that it's just the way we are. And we don't have to get up and say, you know, I need to think about what's pure today. We just think pure because that's the way we have trained ourselves and disciplined ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit to think. 
I, I remember when I learned to drive. My dad had a 1956 Oldsmobile, the absolutely the ugliest car God ever allowed General Motors to make. It was this terrible green and black, had vinyl seats, AM radio, and he gave it to me when I was 15. By the way, you get a driver's license when you're 15 when I was growing up. My dad started teaching me to drive when I was six years old. He'd set me in his lap. He'd put his hands on the wheel, put my hands on the wheel. Of course, you remember when those wheels were this big, you know, and about this much play in them? You did this just to drive straight, you know, and you just go. And so, and I could see between the, wind, between the dashboard, which was metal, great thing for children in cars, by the way, a metal dashboard and the top of the steering wheel, I could see ahead. I had no clue what I was doing. And my dad would sit, let me sit there and drive, and I would drive from the house to, to his store, which was about six blocks. And so I'd drive, and he said, I'd turn the corner, and I'd go. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going everywhere, you know, just trying to get it. And he's down there at the bottom just controlling the wheel. He's running the pedals. I, obviously, I'm not controlling the gas and the brakes and everything else. When we taught our kids to drive, we took them to the cemetery because we figured they couldn't kill anybody else. <laughs> you know, at least all you break is granite, so... Uh, but, you know, you know how it is when you learn to drive. I mean, when, when our kids learn to drive, we said, you know, nobody's going to ride in a car with you, and, and don't turn any music on because you need to concentrate. You need to think about what you're doing. You know, and, and when, I, when I was growing up driving, there was one car per family. Now they're 83. Everybody's got a car, and that's why the roads are so congested. If you people quit buying your kid's car and I quit buying mine, then we could have clear roads again, but that's another story. But I, I would... I started learning how to drive, and then I remember when my dad let me kind of sit down a little closer and touch the brakes, but he had his foot right there on the brake with me, teaching me how to do all this. And then I remember when I first drove by myself, and boy, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd come to that stop sign, and I'd go. Because I knew if I wrecked the car that I would be dead. Because my dad would kill me. And it was everything was conscious like, okay, turn on the blinker. Click, 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 click. Okay, turn the wheel this way. Hands at 10 and 2. And everything was a conscious act. I had to learn to drive. I had to focus on everything about it. But then I don't know what happened. It was somewhere along the way. It just kind of became natural to me. And then I started doing it because we had power steering in that car. I started taking the palm of my hand and just rolling that wheel, boy, making that turn. I felt so cool. And then, and then I was so good, I could rest my arm right here and roll it around. Or if I had a date, I could rest my arm right here and turn the wheel like that. Now, don't try this at home. But I have driven all the way from Mobile, Alabama to Pascagoula, Mississippi with my knees steering the car. That was not the smartest thing I ever did. But you know what driving is for me now? I mean, I drove from Orlando yesterday, 
and, and I just get on the road and I just, you know, I just instinctively know what to watch for. And I, I don't have to think about if I should turn my blinker. I just, my hand just goes and turn the blinker on and I change lanes. And I wish people would do that when they change lanes. And, and I turn the blinker on and I go back because I'm letting people know what I'm doing. You know, nobody has to say, say to me, turn on the lights when it's raining. I just instinctively turn on the lights because it's become a subconscious thing for me to drive. And that's the way what Paul is talking about becomes for us. We do this so much that as we mature and as we grow in our faith, that we don't have to sit down every day and say, I wonder if I've thought about things that are pure today. We just think about things that are pure. And if impure thoughts come to mind, we immediately deal with those because we've trained our minds to think about pure things. I wonder if I've done what's honorable today. We just do it. It's just second nature for us. It becomes a part of who we are. And God has placed in us a Holy Spirit, and He has told us to have a renewed mind, and the Holy Spirit and a renewed mind will produce this kind of attitude in us. Think on these things. Present imperative. Make it a habit of thought, a continuous action. One last verse. Isaiah 26 and verse 3. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. I love this verse. People with their minds set on you, you keep completely whole, steady on their feet, because they keep at it and don't quit. Depend on God and keep at it, because in the Lord God you have a sure thing. Depend on God and keep at it, because in the Lord God, you have a sure thing. We've got an assignment this week. If we're not automatically doing these things, there are some things we're supposed to dwell on and think about and do this week. And there are going to be situations and temptations and pressures that come our way that try to keep us from thinking this way. We just need to make the choice to do it. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name that you would help me and help every person in this room to come to the point in our development and in our maturity where we can think right thoughts and do the right things. Father, that we would not be tempted by the evil one, that we would not be swayed by the opinions of other people, but that we would do that which is true and honorable and pure and right and noble and of good repute and that is excellent. Lord, thank you that we don't have to think the way the world thinks. We can think the way you want us to think. And so I pray that you would help us to be Christians with minds renewed by you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I'm going to ask us to do. You got, the, you got everybody up here. We're just going to go to a reception for Ron and Claudia. We know what to do. We just got to get up and do it. Right? We just need to get up and do what we've talked about today and act on it accordingly.